0: Welcome to another episode of Foreign, Domestic and Forbidden, the podcast about books and ideas. I'm Tim Trash. I am Joaquin Lobo. And we'll be your hosts for the next hour. Joaquin, how are you? I'm fine. I apologize
1: because I've been coughing for a few days. So if I cough, uh, just mute me or do something, edit my cough out. Otherwise, (laughs) I'm great. I'm, you know, I'm excited because... We have a larger audience you, you just told me that we have two, two, new, two, two more countries that are listening to our podcast yes. Guatemala and Romania and I'm sure that we have lots of fans in Guatemala and Romania and I'm, I'm just so excited that that they're listening to, to our podcast
0: yeah yeah it's very very cool and it's and it's your Transylvanian friends.
1: Oh, I have so many friends and fans in Transylvania.
0: Exactly, to, to my, exactly. To my
1: vampire novel. I'm also excited that I'm reading a lot lately. I, you know, I'm sometimes I don't read all the time, and sometimes I just have this desire to read. And I'm I'm discovering authors that I, well, a, a couple new authors that I started reading. One of them is a, a Hungarian writer, Laszlo. Krasna Korkai. Uh, first time I'm reading this guy. And um, it's a really great novel that is set in um, China, whole places. Um, I'm trying to find the name of, of the book. Give me a second. And um, it's Destruction and Sorrow Beneath the Heavens by Laszlo Krasna Korkai. Really interesting. I haven't read enough to, you know, to 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 give it a full uh, endorsement. Uh, two thumbs up. But so far, it's it's really good. And I also started reading another book by. Uh, I read The Years by Annie Erno who just won the Nobel Prize in Literature, and that book is really really good. And I started to read another book that's called. Let me. I'm on my Kindle right now. Called The Possession that's published by Seven Stories Press in, in the US. I'm reading one of your favorite guys' uh collection of essays that I didn't know by Orhan Pamuk. Oh called cool. The Naive and the Sentimental Novelist. I don't know if you know that one.
0: No, I haven't read that one.
1: And I'm just, so far, I'm just in the problem. And you know, he's such a classic voice talking about. About reading books, his experience uh, with novels since he was a little kid, how he came upon uh, the novel and the effect that entering into that kind of universe that only the novel can give you, what that meant for him in his in his early childhood, and someone else that I you know I I think this is thanks to Mauricio, our friend Mauricio Montiel, who's always reading all this crazy stuff, and I haven't even heard the name of a Stefan Zweig. Is that how you pronounce his name? Stefan Zweig?
0: Stefan Zweig, yes. Uh-huh.
1: Um, a and, and novel that was published by the New York Review of Books back in 2006 called Beware of Pity.
0: Oh, I
1: don't Beware know. Beware of Pity. Is and he... I, I knew this guy because I read a very famous biography of Macmillan, like many, many years ago when I was a kid. And something else, you know, he was very famous back when I was a kid, mm-hmm. you know, in the 70s, I guess that at some point his name sort of disappeared from the mainstream, but he was quite a popular uh, author in Europe.
0: Yes, and, and he wrote this one book that is, I think, his his biggest claim to fame, The Chess Story or Chess Novella, <coughs> schach Novella. And um it's it's a really wondrous little book. It's maybe, I don't know, eighty pages. oh wow, eighty, 80 or hundred pages. and about about a journey to Argentina, uh, by ship, of course, at that point, and somebody who has learned chess in confinement, confronting, a grand master on that ship and starting to play with him oh and it's, it's it's that sounds great oh it's fantastic it's so good it, what's the name
1: of the book now i feel like i should i should I get th- it. i
0: think translated here in english they either call it chess story or chess novella uh, oh wow depending and it's it's just it's just really really beautiful and it's I mean, you, you you feel that it has sort of a slight sheen of patina, but um, I taught it once many years ago and, uh, well, many years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, many years ago, and <clears throat> students just loved it. I, w- I wasn't sure that they would really take to both the subject and, and the time it set in. And no, they 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 loved it. I mean, it's 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 still it's you read it and and, and you notice it's not twenty twenty two but um the language in in how the subject matter is being dealt with feels feels very modern, still very, very of the moment. it's 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 really cool,
1: and I think that chess is very much in our minds these days because they're having a lot of news about. <laughs> you know, this guy who's been cheating, yeah. an American kid, a young man who's been cheating on chess. And he yes. was exposed by, you know, a very famous chess. Who was it? One of the big names, Kasparov, one of those guys who said, This oh, guy's it's, a, it,
0: it's this. It, it's the current guy, and I always for, for, forget his name um, uh, Magnus. Oh, Is he a
1: Norwegian guy?
0: yeah, Maybe yeah def- a guy. definitely definitely uh
1: but i was it, just uh, so excited that that you know this guy was exposed because i i have a lot of respect for chess i think to me it's kind of a sacred game that you don't mess with chess right it's like the power of your mind and that's one of the highest expressions of uh your intellectual ability as far as Coming out with the strategy and knowing the game and knowing the history and the moves, and cheating is just so despicable. I think.
0: Yeah. Uh, so so uh, it's Magnus Carlson, and, right. and, and and you're right, he's Norwegian, and the other kid is is Hans Niemann, Hans Niemann. Um, but I I don't have the same feelings like that. Chess is sacred. There's something there's something weird about it, uh, something something too logical something too mm. too non-sensory to me like in in order to fall in love with it i loved it as a kid i was i was really enamored with chess and everything around it but i agree uh, when you take it seriously it 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 is a beautiful thing and and it has its own rules and and to cheat you for- it feels really stupid. I don't know. I was just...
1: Well, I'm going to challenge you to a game of chess. I know you're going to kick my ass, but I'm going to challenge you. Uh, I... So one day, I want to play a game with you.
0: Oh God! I, I'm I, terrible. You're
1: gonna you're gonna beat me,
0: Tim. I... I don't, I don't even know the moves anymore. I haven't played <laughs> like in 40 years or so, so I, I really and don't. It's know not
1: anything. like riding a bicycle, right? It's the opposite <laughs> of riding a bicycle.
0: <laughs> when I was a teenager, I got to know a person um, I will not name, and that person was a total dickwad and and he loved chess and ever since i i can't look at at the game the same way anymore so
1: it's traumatized my friend
0: (laughs) i'm so so sorry (laughs) i wouldn't call it quite that but like since then that a guy could love a game like that I, i was just like no well,
1: we're very sensitive. We're very easily traumatized. <laughs> some jerk just was really mean. I was, you know, went to 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 the store to buy something, and some bully, which is really nasty, and I I was traumatized just like an hour ago. So, oh. that that happens.
0: Yeah. By gold. the way, to piggyback on what you said about Orhan Pamuk, uh, he has a new book out, and it's finally available. Actually. Okay. here in the states um and it's called nights of plague mm. um wow. it came out here a little later um other translations over in europe were a little faster to the market but it's out now that's and good
1: news that's great yeah do you buy the do you buy the first editions do you buy the hardcover editions
0: i like to buy the hardcover editions i'm not um uh, I'm not a collector so anything is pretty much fine with me but I love the hardcover because usually the print is also bigger yes not not always but but when it when it becomes a mass market paper bag it often is so tiny that I find it uncomfortable to read and so uh, and and there's something to to the cracking of a hardcover book it's beautiful oh yeah oh yeah no, a, yeah
1: i love it many years ago one of our guests uh eric martin um he came to the house for dinner and out of the blue he says wow you have all these hard covers i mean i didn't know you you collected hardcovers, covers and i i never realized that i had a lot of hardcovers." covers and um, I look at my books and I, I felt kind of self-conscious and I didn't know what to say. You know, he wasn't being mean. He wasn't, he, he, he was just a comment, right? You have all these nice. Yeah. Covers. And then when he left, I, I was troubled by the comment. I, I said, well, what does that mean? Right. What does it say about me that I'm a snob, that I spend too much money on books? What, you know, and then I realized that I grew up in Mexico and, you know, we don't have hardcovers in Mexico. Of course, sometimes oh. books, some books get, you know, edited, published in, in hardcover. But, but most of the books, including all of my books that I have published, are paperbacks. Mm-hmm. And I realized that when I came to the, the U.S., I spent a lot of time and money going to, uh, to buy used books. And I was just drawn to beautiful hardcover books because to me they were not a luxury. They were just these beautiful objects that I could buy for very little money you know two, three, five bucks got me back in the day uh, a beautiful hardcover edition of you know Hawthorne or Hemingway or whatever I was reading at the time And, um, and I ended up with many many hardcover books it really didn't that didn't change until I started to move a lot. And I realized that, you know, paying the weight and the volume that the hardcover uh means when you are moving is just made it not feasible, not you know, not a good strategy. And now I I you know I went back to to, to paperbacks because they're just too big and too bulky, too heavy. They're yeah. beautiful though.
0: Yeah, I, I, I like them better. They're I mean. Yeah, for, for for convenience's sake, uh, paperback is much preferable. Um but yeah, the hardcover is, is is kind of nice. I I it's it's a different tactile experience. And and there's also it seems the publisher wanted to put more money behind the book and exactly. and present it and take good care of it and and so I, I think we we place a higher value on that. On the other hand, if, if you read, as I always did back in Berlin, if you read books on the subway, it's much nicer to have a paper bag in your hand.
1: Yeah, if you travel, you know, if the book yeah. is in your backpack. But I do hope I'll, before I die, I'd I'll, I'll love to have one of my novels uh, published as a hardcover. We'll see.
0: Yeah, that that would be lovely
1: that would be lovely let me also report back on the book that i was reading two weeks ago when we had that conversation with uh uh Nate Jaya that you know has been very successful so far i was reading yoga by emmanuel Carrera and i finished it mm. oh man what a fantastic book it's really really great and i was not disappointed sometimes emmanuel Carrera kind of annoys me because he's like this rich French like aristocrat (laughs) kind of a spoiled (laughs) child you know yeah Uh, and uh, that sometimes gets in my nerves but man what a fantastic book yoga I totally recommend anyone who might be interested in a book on yoga that is not about yoga and yet it is about yoga it's it's just fantastic it's not what people expect when, when they see a book that's part of yoga. And also another book, this not, this one is not available in English, but this is a book that was recommended to me by Mauricio. It's uh, by an Italian scholar, Pietro Cittati. Uh, that's called Absolute Evil. Again, not, not available. I don't believe it's available in English. El, El Mal Absoluto. Um, that's a very, very um, erudite Uh, essay, long, long essay, or a collection of essays on the 19th century novel in Europe. Very canonical, very Eurocentric, you know, it's what you expect from a guy who's a scholar interested in mostly European literature, but nevertheless, very, very enjoyable. El mal absoluto in uh, the corazón de la novela del siglo XIX, in the heart of that nineteenth century novel.
0: Do, do you read do you read several books at the same time, so depending on what you're in the mood for?
1: Yes, yes. I can read up to five books at the same time. Huh. Um, ideally, they have to be different. like like I'm reading you know the French novel, the Hungarian novel, the Italian essay, the Chinese novels. I'm. I, I could not read like five books in English, like five books written by contemporary authors in English or in Spanish, uh, because I I would probably get confused and mixed up. Uh, but if the books are very very different, yes, I I not only can I do it, I also want to do it because I get bored sometimes reading the same book. How about you?
0: I, I can't do it. Uh that it has never really worked Uh, I I usually abandon one of the books then and and keep reading the other like I was never really able to focus on too many things at one time it's um, yeah that doesn't work I have a very I don't know very one channel mind I can do one thing at a time and it's hard it, it's hard for me too to to go back to a book if i let it sit too long right um i lose really the thread and uh, i i have to keep reading i don't have to read it all in one week or whatever usually right now it takes me several months to finish a, a full novel but um it it needs to be a little bit by little bit and and, and I, yeah, I, I I can't wait too long. Otherwise, like the book feels cold and and weird to me, and then I'll probably never finish it.
1: Yeah, that happens to me sometimes. If I if I don't go back to a book within you know a reasonable period of time, I have to start all over again, which I never mind. I I don't think that it's a waste of time. I actually like starting all over again because I see things that I didn't see first. And yeah. I think that's true of, you know, every time you reread anything, you appreciate it in a different way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true.
1: But I, I like better your system. I think it's better to focus on one thing. I I just, I'm, I'm just very restless and impatient. And I, <laughs> I get more very easily. And that's not something good. It's not a virtue.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm mostly reading short stories right now, and I'm trying to focus more on climate fiction these days. Oh, wow. And um, always trying to pick up some that that I can use for my classes because I've decided I don't want to teach no, quote-unquote normal stories anymore uh, about heartbreak or about uh, other issues, really, because I really feel that We need to press the issue of climate change, and and we can do that through literature because, as I found out, there's tons of beautiful stories that that are not just little stump speeches or or what Uh have you, but but that are really beautiful written and but try to focus on how we are interacting with our environment, what what consequences certain events have, what consequences we have um, on the planet. And and so I'm trying to slowly and hopefully somewhat quote unquote naturally bring that into the classroom um, to also show students really that the outside world the everyday problems everything we're facing right now from maybe losing our democracy to climate change to wars around the world that we can bring that in our into our work in what we're writing without it feeling overly ambitious or stupid or uh like propaganda or any of that mm-hmm right um and that we can just observe these things and bring them into that and and here in in the North Bay Area everybody has now had experiences with all kinds of natural oh, disasters and so it's it's a normal thing to bring that into our stories like if you write about this area and about people living in this area then naturally you will mention these things and, and they, they don't are always... the
1: most qualified. Professor to do that, I
0: mean, your experience, yeah, but
1: you already spoke about this on the podcast. You lost your house on a fire, so
0: yeah, but but it's it's more than that because, um, to to look at that event not not just through the lens of uh personal loss or 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 that, but but really to to put it into the larger context of what we're really doing right now, how we are all behaving and, and how we can all work toward a better understanding of how things are connected. Because I was just listening this morning to Pod Save America and while in this during the summer the topic of abortion rights was really very hot and people were very outraged about the supreme court decision and were very stoked to vote and and to get people who want to restrict abortion rights to vote them out it has cooled off and and people are more concerned about the economy it seems right now and True. and uh, I mean, for certain, you know, like um, a lot of people and and uh, many people who don't have the greatest paying jobs um, are squeezed in, I mean, <laughs> the other day I went to the gas station and I was like looking at, oh shit, like <laughs> how can I still be driving to my school every day, you know, yeah. uh, with gas prices like that. But we need to like we 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 need to keep connecting the issues more than we do, not just to jump from one outrage to the next outrage or from one concern to the next concern, but we really need to try and persuade people to look at how these things are all connected and how they are not isolated events, but really a web that we are spinning all together and how we can focus on how it's interconnected rather than just looking for the next big thing and and so so that that climate change is connected to wars is connected to inflation is connected to all of that What's what gets tossed out when people are concerned about the economy? Why does it get suddenly tossed out because it's still important? and to keep all these things in mind because we're not very good at that as a society to to keep all the connections in the back of our minds. Yeah, so hopefully, hopefully that'll work. I have no idea. I'm gonna try to to make that jump but i'd be really curious
1: to see you know what happens at the end of this uh, class because some 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 people might say you know might have a very scenic approach to or question about the the quote-unquote benefits of, of a curriculum that deals with climate change in the context of of creative writing uh, but it's not only climate change, you know, it's war, it's politics, it's a lot of things that are going on that are really messing with our daily lives in, 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 in ways that we did not suspect only 10 years ago. Now it's not only climate change. Now, you know, we have to deal with the legacy of fucking Donald Trump. We have to deal with crazy Putin in Russia. So everything has changed. So to those who might Question: The value of this type of writing, including this type of topics in in
0: in fiction or in poetry, what what would you say, Tim? I don't know. I, I mean, like 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 I I think I said before, like I I don't have I don't have much hope that the writing will like that 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 writing will change the world quickly enough, um and and. We're we're dealing with a world where so many things happen so quickly right now, the rise of the extreme far right, leaders that are trying to undermine democracy while still maintaining a facade of voter input. But we're dealing with so many problems that it's sometimes really, really hard to not keep pushing against those things to say, well, fuck it, I'll have a good time and, right. and, let, and let the planet go to shit. Nonetheless, I think writing always has been to me a way of asserting that I'm really alive, that I really do exist. And I think I have always tried to find out what I'm thinking by writing stuff down. I, I think I have a vast capacity for delusion about <laughs> who I who I am and where I am and 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 what's happening in the world. Um, and, and when you're not being tested, when you don't have much outside activity like we didn't have during the pandemic, um, I think the perception of self gets very queasy and weird because you don't have the mirror you don't have the exactly. other people telling you well that's that's shit what you're thinking there or that doesn't work or oh this is this might be interesting you or know you, you don't
1: yeah or yeah. the opposite when you have a lot of people raving about your work and what you do and telling yeah. you that you know what you're doing is great
0: yeah exactly exactly and but writing is a good way, I think, to find out what's really going on with you. and And so, my hope is that that through writing, people will experience w- what it means to live in a world that is really imperiled right now, and make sense of that, and maybe feel less frustrated by it. Feel also, less. Also, you know,
1: one of the things that I try to remember is that writing is just half of the equation. And I'm, I'm saying this because last night I had a Zoom session with a, uh, a, a group of readers, a book club in Mexico City, something like 12 women who read uh, my latest novel. and You know, I'm always glad to talk to people who, who read my book and, and want to share their experience of the reading and I was just like, like so excited and happy and grateful that, you know, people like this book. They, they had questions and they loved it and they were, you know, really excited that I, that I was with them. And I was really excited that, you know, I had the chance to talk to them. And it's always like women, right? I don't know how different that might be in, in other places, but in Mexico, every time I attend a book club, it's always women. Like ninety nine percent of people in book, book clubs are very smart, articulate, professional women usually who make time in their busy schedules to get together and and talk about books. These women do it once a month. They get to they have a, now that we don't have to do everything in Zoom. They you know they had a really nice table. Like I could see that they had dinner and they had a bottle of wine and they were just like ready to go and it was great so that's what i forget sometimes that it's not just writing we're always like talking about writing and it's a drag is this is that and i always complain about writing a book i hate it it doesn't make any sense no one is going to read it but guess what people read the books (laughs) and i i just don't know who reads the book so when i have the opportunity to talk to some people who read the book the right way for the right reasons a book that is not a bestseller, a book that is not on the you know on the list of most popular books in the Mexican bookstores. And I was like, wow, they read the book and they they loved it, and they, you know, it, the story made sense to them. So maybe you know, the question of why why creating a curriculum that deals with this is just doesn't make any sense to us this question. The, the, because the I think the process is what makes sense. The conversation, the the set of conversations that arises from from talking about these issues, politics, love, war, sex, fear, right? A lot of fear that we're dealing with these days. The conversation, then the way in which each one of us writes about it and how that goes out into the world and takes a life of its own.
0: Yeah, and and hopefully more people will will be swayed by what they read, and 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 that's a problem I have. Um, like there's a there's often a weird disconnect between the things that we understand, and then the things we do as a consequence of those things we have read and understood. People have the greatest epiphany, but then you go out into the world, and right now I feel. In order to participate in this world, to have a job, to do all the things I'm doing, I need to trash the planet. And uh, I have to get in my car, I have to go to campus, I have to drive back. Um, when I go shopping, because we're living out in sort of at the edge of the city, uh, oh. I have to drive. Um, when you go into the store. and you become aware of how much plastic everything is wrapped in. And and how much plastic you buy without realizing that you're buying plastic. Right. It's amazing. And, and it is. then I always feel a little bit defeated. I, I, I personally try to cut out unnecessary plastics as much as I can. But when you're buying food, it's really, really, really hard to do so. I mean, I'm trying to buy more fresh food, less processed food and all that. But but even so, there's just so much trash just from food wrapping. And that's just the tiniest bit. You go right. into a store and you're looking for a present for someone maybe. And you see all these things like the... The boxes, uh, the wrapping materials, the things itself Ah, that are made of plastic, and um, so so in order to be in this world, you often have to participate in the destruction of that same world, and so you can realize what you're doing, and you can try to do less of it, but it's 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 extremely hard to discipline yourself to try to cut out unnecessary trips, unnecessary purchases. And we need right now, and I've said that before, very radical solutions. And the will to be that radical, I don't think we're there yet. And that has me worried. So I'm hoping that that writing will contribute to that. But writing, and we're coming back to this point, is a very slow medium. So I'm not sure... Um, how we're going to exact that change. And if people won't forget it, if uh, the economy might get worse, uh, because then it's always, oh, we don't have time for that. We don't have the money for that. And we really, if we want to have a future here on this planet, we need to focus on those problems. We need to focus on sustainability. Otherwise, well, yeah, otherwise we're dead. (laughs) Yes. You know, one of the things that I, I
1: I struggle with when I when I teach, I have this class where we teach I teach advanced composition and I read with my students a uh, co- for a couple of years now a uh, collection of essays that was edited by Rebecca Solnit. You know, one of those best American essays. And this was the best American essays of 2019. And um, you know, it's very political. It has it was collected under the influence of the first years of Donald Trump in power. It has essays on climate change. Really, really interesting, smart uh, collection of essays. And you know, one of the things that I struggle with is the idea that my students, I feel at least in the context of the college where I teach, California College of the Arts, are constantly thinking about this. And it's not just what they discuss and learn in other classes. I think that this is a generation that's being bombarded by this message of uh, end of times. You know, this conversation that we're having times 10 uh, through social media. I don't think I don't see them reading the New York Times or watching TV. I think TV is very foreign to them. But I'm sure that TikTok and Instagram or whatever they use is some, maybe not Twitter and not Facebook, because I don't think that generation Z is using those platforms. But I think that, you know, there is this, this, this anxiety, this hyper anxiety in this generation where they're getting this message, right? Like everything is collapsing. We have to do something about it. In, mm-hmm. in, in the case of my school, we have to design uh, for, uh, for, for the environment we have to you know we have to to build we have to rethink the way we we, we deal with mat- materials in art in architecture and so on so i'm always conflicted by the idea that i don't want to bring more anxiety into their lives and how to balance that how to address these issues without You know, creating more fear and more anxiety in students who might be already too burdened thinking about this. So what I what I started doing is, you know, we're going to talk about this, you're going to write, you know, essays that don't have to deal with this. These are models for you to talk about anything you want to talk about in your essays. And they're going to read books, novels that have nothing to do with that so i like to throw like a like a mystery like a crime novel right so i take their minds away from that or we watch a film or documentary that doesn't have to do with that because one of the things that i worry about is that in the process of trying to change to to elicit a discussion that might bring about some kind of change we're just like are we making are we making people more afraid and more anxious about what's going on how do we balance that you know i'm i'm just sort of troubled by by that by that question
0: yeah and and, and i hear you I, I i really i i really hear you um <clears throat> and i've i've been thinking about that too but i don't think we have the time to worry about that anymore because <laughs> the the far right doesn't have that worry they are scaring <laughs> no they are scaring yes, people with, with stories about crime and immigrants flooding into the country oh, and and uh the economy and whatever they they are scaring people every day well they
1: scare me you know they scare the shit out of me now
0: yeah but it's it's the the thing is the left, I feel, is always too afraid of what they might be doing, how it's going to come across. The generation of my current students, we need them to do all the things that our generation <laughs> failed to do or failed to do enough of. And if we estrange a few, fine, but but we need people really to listen and to take action. And And that's, I think our challenge to not tell them, oh, here's another thing you should be worried about. Let's all be sad about it. But to say, here are the things that are threatening us. But the more you know about them, the more you know how to not feel afraid, but spring into action. And that the action can be fun. You know, that the action doesn't have to be cut and dry and 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 hopeless and, and awful, but that becoming an activist, uh, writing about climate change, eliminating certain things from your life that you don't need and that are wasteful, that that can be a fun challenge. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom, but you need to be aware of those things. You know, just like when you go out and out into the ocean on a boat you know that you're in danger but it's fun being there you know uh, when you when you go diving or you go swimming or when you go hiking uh, there's always some danger involved but it's kind of fun doing it and, and we need to really point out that those challenges are here but that doesn't mean like now we have to hide under our beds no we need to come out and fight those things. And that the fight is not always awesome. It's not making you feel good every single day, but it's something worth doing, because it is the one thing we need to do in order to ensure that there is actually something coming after our generation.
1: I was just listening to the most one of the recent episodes of Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and mm. this guy was talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene.
0: Oh yes. And,
1: oh <laughs> god, it did totally freaked me out because that. After listening to that, I was listening to Steve Bannon that was just sentenced to four months in jail this morning, and he was making very clear to whoever who wanted to listen to him, and I was willing to listen to these people because I really want to know what they're saying. He was saying that, you know, uh, November 8th is Judgment Day for, for the Democrats. And the way I was listening to this uh, guy uh, on fresh air who spent some time with Marjorie Taylor Green and actually got to know her, you know, this seems to me a very serious uh, um, article that was published, I, I don't know the New York Times or somewhere about this woman. I'm beginning to feel that they do have a really, really good chance to take Congress back from the Democrats and to elect a very right-wing folk uh, person in 2024. And I'm beginning to feel the same way I did back in 2015 when everyone was convinced that uh, Hillary Clinton had a very easy uh, path to to the White House because the New York Times and CNN and everyone was saying um, Hillary Clinton has 90% approval rate and Donald Trump is no way he's going to get to that point. Uh, He's a joke. He's not serious. And American people are more intelligent than that. I'm beginning to feel, you know, in a very similar way that that um, that we're heading on that direction, despite the fact that I think, and he's not perfect, but Biden has been a much better president than Obama has been a much better president than Clinton. One of the best, you know, presidents that we had in a long, long time. Much better, than, of course, than all these Republicans. And he's managed to achieve a lot that is getting lost in the mess of the economy and, you know, and the war and the gas prices, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. The book you mentioned is Robert Draper's Weapons of Mass Delusion.
1: That's the one. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's done several interviews. I caught him on another pod and uh, very smart, very, very strange listening, very strange reading, uh, but but yeah, spellbinding, and um, it is it is scary how Marjorie Taylor Greene has hired all the people that you thought were disgraced and hiding away, but uh, brilliant strategists and very dangerous strategists, and it's yeah, it's definitely something that we have to take on, but. But again, I feel the more we know about what's going on, the better we are prepared to deal with it. And whether that be opening our wallets and giving candidates yeah. money. Well, exactly. That's, it's, that's a
1: very concrete way of doing it. Not just like, yeah. whining, you know, send money. I just sent money to Valdeming in, in in Florida because I want her to defeat Marco Rubio. You know, pizza <laughs> yeah. Marco Rubio, little Marco.
0: Yeah, and,
1: and I mean, <laughs> I, I'm I'm not sending thousands of dollars, but I'm sending my 20 bucks.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: but you know what freaks me out, Tim, is that it's happening everywhere. It just happened in Italy, you know, with Melania. Yeah. I I don't know. I I don't know what's going to happen in Brazil. It looks like Lula has a good chance of coming back, but you never know with Bolsonaro. And it's it's a trend. Uh, the right is taking over in many, many places. And it's thanks exactly to people like Steve, Steve Bannon, who come across as, as, to some people, not to me, come across as articulate and you know, have, a, have, a, have a message that's, that's perfectly acceptable for, for a lot of people in many places, unsuspected places. You know, people you don't imagine might be listening to this stuff or listening to this stuff. And, you know, like this guy said in in that conversation, the guy who wrote this book that you just mentioned, it's a different, you know, information ecosystem that they have. And in that ecosystem, the truth looks very different to our truth. And who are we to say you don't have the right to think that, you don't have the right to believe that?
0: Yeah, but we have to fight yeah (laughs) We, we we have to find because because this is again this is this is our moment you know if we fail in this moment if we don't maybe sometimes mention it too often or whatever if we don't do that then then we have already lost and so by the way if if there were noises in the background um Nozomi is here and she's wearing a cone and she doesn't like the cone, so she makes a lot of noise with the cone to oh. remind me that she, she's wearing a cone. She yeah, she had, yeah, she had a little surgery. She had a little growth on her legs and oh. we took that off. and. All right. So in order for her not to get at the sutures, like she needs to wear the cone and she's not very happy about that. I
1: her. thought she, she got a face leak or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a little bit that because that was there was also a little growth on her nose and we had that taken <laughs> off. Um, so so it is a little bit of nip and tuck. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is time for our recommendation. Oh my
1: God, already?
0: Joaquin, what do you have?
1: Teaching for an hour already. <laughs> Jesus Christ!
0: Yeah, I know. I know. Well, what, right. what, what do you expect? We're two teachers.
1: <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. And a strange recommendation. Timothy Snyder, who's a really bright guy who knows a lot about Ukraine, and who's written a lot about Ukraine and topics that deal with fascism. Uh, decided to put the, his lectures that he's teaching right now on uh, at Yale. He's, he's teaching a really amazing course on Ukraine. Mm. As it's happening right now, he's posting the lectures on YouTube. Oh, wow. So check out Timothy Snyder, lectures on Ukraine on YouTube. It's just absolutely brilliant. And I love what, you know, anything he has to say about Ukraine and Applebaum and, and their friends. and Applebaum and Timothy Snyder are two of the most articulate folks. Publishing on the Atlantic and you know many other places uh, with a great deal of, of historical perspective to understand better what's going on in Ukraine. He's really changing a lot of the thing, assumptions that I had about Ukraine and that war. The, the nuance with which he, he can talk about uh, the present of Ukraine, going back centuries, so he exp- so he can explain to to, to his students at jail his personal views and experience because he travels a lot to Ukraine. It's it's absolutely fascinating.
0: Cool. So that's my recommendation for today. Wow! Awesome, awesome one. Um, my So rec- I have three because they are all short stories. Um, because <laughs> that's what I'm reading these days. Um, so and I will pull them up here. The first one is by Shannon McGuire, and it's called The Myth of Rain. It takes what we know about the about California and the Pacific Northwest, but extends it by maybe 10 or 20 years. It's a really cool piece. Um very, very beautiful, um, but also uh very dark um and, and definitely falls into climate fiction, but it's 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 just it's just a beautiful story, too. Um the other ones are Claire Dean, The Unwish, and I'm not sure that I that I might have mentioned her before because that story is. Is, is very haunting and very weird. It's not climate fiction, that one isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, it's a story of two sisters. And it's very creepy, beautifully observed. Mm. Um, very, very uncanny. It's often not clear what exactly happens. Uh, very cool story. Claire Dean the Unwish. And the last one falls sort of squarely between supernatural horror and climate fiction. And it's oh Liz god. Clark's The Hide.
1: Um, oh, I know that story. It's it's unbelievable. It's one of my favorite stories ever.
0: Yeah, it's about birds and oh, it's gorgeous. Oh, oh my god. It is it is so, it's so good.
1: beautifully written. It's amazing,
0: and it's available. All these are available online, so you can. We'll put the links in the show note. Doesn't cost a dime, and yeah, it's 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 an amazing story. Yeah, that that is that, and man, episode twenty four. All right. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you for. for coming and listening to us yet again and um, hope we're going to see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye, everybody.
1: Bye.